thing that just uh, kind of zapped me in London, right in, the, right in London, found the silence. And then, then I had kind of, I became fascinated by emptiness and bleakness. I had visions of going to to the North Pole or to to Lapland up in <laughs> northern North Norway or places that are totally bleak and <coughs> kind of became a state of uh, twilight, <coughs> twilight zone. <laughs> What, is, what are these? You know, it wasn't depressing. It wasn't these images weren't like they weren't like depressing images. They were peaceful, like bleakness rather than being gray and depressing was peaceful. Where to before bleakness was ugly and depressing. Bleak winters in England, or uh, you know, everything, all the leaves are off the trees, no flowers, you've got grey skies and and it's cold and everything is the trees uh, don't have any leaves on them. And then the mind suddenly switched to just a change from from uh, wanting eternal spring to beginning to kind of open to the to this other that had been rejected or not never really noticed or understood, just merely reacted to the version. So then it's Axis Mundi. I said, where is the Axis Mundi then? Where can it really be? And I'm going to Mount Kailash in October. <laughs> That's more of a symbolic pilgrimage that that the axis mundi, you know, then then the insight came is, you know, obviously yourself. That you are the center of the universe in terms of experience. I'm talking about direct experience, not about ultimate reality or anything, but in terms of the way it is as experience. So that's quite a for me, that's quite an insight because I'd always related to the world as if I was just another uh, ordinary human being on this planet. Uh, you know, in the ways that society uh, prepares you to be a member of a society and to pull your weight and perform your duties and, and be moral and, and not be a nuisance and identity with a class or a group or whatever within the society. And then contemplate this. In terms of experience right now, I mean, you think of yourself as a personality, you think, I'm just an ordinary person. You know, I'm nobody special. Unless you're, you know, maybe you think you're special. <laughs> But generally, we tend to see ourselves just, you know, one, just one rather insignificant <coughs> being on the planet. And, you know, if I die, what difference does it make? You know, my death is, isn't going to upset the universe. If I die, who's going to, you know, <coughs> who cares? If you, you might 
shed a few tears at my funeral. <coughs> we get on with our lives. And so we can see ourselves as insignificant or irrelevant. But then in terms of meditation, you, you're looking at the way it is now. Not, the, not through ideas, not through the ideals you might have about how it should be, but the way it is. And uh, like right now, <coughs> coming from this my mind, you know, on the center, this is the center here, the central point, actually wounded. That's experience, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you come and go, I see you come in and go out. I can have memories of you, I can think of you when you're not around, but those things change all the time. So, so this is just a reflection on Dhamma, the way things are in terms of experience. It's not a, 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 a megalomaniac, a megalomaniacal statement, you know, I'm the center of the universe and the ego, but no. But it is a reflection on experience. Because it's the same for each one, isn't it? Every human being, or every creature, in fact, in terms of its own experience, its things impinges, it survives, it's, it's the center of its, <coughs> of the universe. And so that's what, like, being a conscious form is, you know, whether your life is of great importance to the rest of the world or not, it is important because it's what you're experiencing. They, I mean, in terms of, I mean, you might think, oh, my life is on, I'm an unimportant person, it doesn't matter. But in terms of experience right now, it does matter, doesn't it? What you're thinking affects you, what happens, whether people are praising or criticizing, blaming whether you're feeling good or feeling miserable or it affects the experience in the present. <coughs> so you, the still point or the axis mundi is the, is the point of mindfulness and you can contemplate in that way. And like, like self-consciousness is a, is a, is where we do we, we get caught up with the, the, the external things as being you know what people think of me and what uh, you know am I being am I really useful here or am I appreciated or not or am I liked or not liked or respected or not respected or am I doing the right thing by being a monk or am I what you know then this is this is uh, conceptual proliferation based on the ego, the sense of I am a, a personality. But this is on experience. So you begin to, because your personality is something that changes all the time. It comes and goes. You're not the same personality every moment. It's impossible, isn't it, to be the same person every moment. You just assume you are. You know, I'm not just a meter all the time. But in terms of experience, when you're really watching, you know, I'm not like a tomato all the time. 
Conscience of Medo is a condition that when the conditions support that perception, then it arises and then it goes away. It's not an absolute. But yet, when we grasp perception, <coughs> then we always think Conscience of Medo is, you know, it gives us a stability, a sense of, you know, he's, Conscience of Medo is, is here this way and these agents are made all the time and it's really frightening to think that you know, sometimes I'm not actually having an observation so we seek stability don't we through uh, having I know him you know and then we have a fixed perception about him or her you know that they're like this gives us a sense of security and stability and then <coughs> when they act in a way that we feel betrayed or disappointed and we, we get very depressed because <clears throat> because that person is you know we depended upon them for being a certain way and then they change and then we feel betrayed or or disappointed in them because we our, our sense of security depended on that kind of relationship that you're always going to be there for me and be my friend and support me and and then when you don't do that then I feel frightened and let down because on the that's on the personality level of thought and perception. So then the the refuge isn't in the or even like teachers, you know, like they get dependent upon the, your perception of the teacher being a, a, you know he's always going to be like this and I can depend on him and he'll never let me down they would have had a stroke So the, the aim of the meditation is to <coughs> begin to like reflecting on the way things are, isn't the critical, isn't criticizing or just, just noticing. Uh, what I notice and experience in the present is like right now in terms of visual consciousness, you're you're in my mind. You're objects of my sight. That's the way it is. The set for point is, is in terms of experiences is here. And so we, we connect to that through mindfulness, the axis mundi, or the still point. And then the and then you realize that in, in intuitive awareness the still point can be a point or it can be the totality. The still point, isn't it? It's not like it's not like a perception that you have a still point. It's like a dot on a piece of paper that's fixed in size. But intuitive awareness doesn't have any dimensions. You know, it can be tiny or infinite. It can be a little dot on a piece of paper. It can be immeasurable. That's in terms of experience, and that's not. It's a reflect on that, you know, how 
because we do we do we're conditioned to see the world in the, in a different way. The world we create is based on I am a person, you are a person, and and all the identities uh, that we have around that and the conditioning uh, that we have and and, and the character tendencies the different ways of feeling about experience you know each person you know like like a William Faulkner novel and he's an American writer that he takes one incident and then has has how different people experience that same thing how they see it like brilliant <coughs> like I was uh, history I was in the uh, um, studying history in university, majoring in history. And so I remember wanting history to be like a science, almost an accurate science. This is what actually happened. And this war, this is what actually happened. These were the these were right, these were wrong. This is the this is the way it really this is the facts. These are the statistics. But it's not like that in history subjective, you know, how how one person sees what happens is going to be different than how the next one. So, like, I was in the, in the, I was interested in the British colonial period in, in India, reading the British historian's version and the Indian historian's, historian's version of what happened. Who's right? You know, with the British lie? Are they lying about what happened? Or are the Indians? Or is it just a different way of perceiving, you know, how you're conditioned to perceive? You're identified as being British, then it's easy to see things that, with that perception implanted. But if you're conditioned to be in yourself as Indian, then you see things that, that, uh, that, uh, they could go along with that that identity so you can't it's all very unstable isn't it history is is nothing you can really depend upon the accurate the truth so in terms of meditation you're beginning to just in that state of attention Axis Mundi, that still point, the center of being in the present. So by reflecting in that way, you can also begin to get some perspective on your own personality and how it works and, and how you, your cultural conditioning, how that operates. And, and uh, you, know, you have some, you have perspective then on the condition uh, conditioning of your own mind other than than seeing it in a personal way in which we tend to be critical you know and to see our emotional habits in terms of being critical of them or believing them you know there's a lot of self-hatred self-disturbing in there can be we have, you know, sometimes we hate our emotions, you know, the fact that we get angry easily or we get 
offended by something, or we, or we feel, uh, you know, we feel uh, we're not loved enough, or uh, we, and we can, we can, we can be uh, critical of it. I mean, this is rubbish, you know. Grow up, stop it. The rational mind, you know, has the idea of you know this is stupid, and you're trying to trying to uh, eradicate your emotional feelings that you don't like. But in the still point, you know, it's not judgmental. It's not, not a matter of approving or disapproving of what you're feeling. It's just knowing it's like this. So the, the impermanence of it is like this. Well, like a still point is, in terms of experience, is something that that you can trust in. It's, uh, what the refuge is really about, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, because it's still and stable and uh, intelligent and alert. Where your personality can go all over the place. Related one moment, you know, world is absolutely fantastic. Next moment, you want to commit suicide. You know, emotion, my emotions can fluctuate. remember a feeling years ago like you know, when I was a, you know having to be ahead of the community I kept, kept uh, hearing myself thinking please don't don't say anything that will upset me right now I'm not ready yet Somebody comes with a kind of <laughs> terrible expression on their face. Gonna say something that's gonna upset me. <laughs> Already upset myself. Great story Ajahn Virdamo has about the elephants. You know, he he got really fed up with uh, life and and uh, chitters and went off to Thailand and, and went up to in northern Thailand to cave, a beautiful place. It's getting really peaceful. Everything is just super. That's what he always wanted, and then. Then one morning he, he he went to the stream where he got his drinking water and he saw that the elephants had defecated into the stream. He said that would be fine. <laughs> Wherever you are, there's something, something unpleasant going to happen. 
So the, this, this stable point is in the uh, is in that awareness. The actus mundi, the symbol of actus mundi. Stupas are are like uh, uh, visible symbols for that. You know, because they have they kind of they're big at the base, and they kind of get more refined up to a fine point at the top. And the temple is like an actus mundi, uh, isn't it? The way it's built with this, this kind of square base <coughs> to a point, and, and so these are these are symbolic of that. And so, like a square is, is the world, is the sign of the world. It's north, south, east, and west. It's divided with directions. The circle is a sign for infinity. You know, in, uh, Measurable. Then the point at the top is like still point. But you have uh, also this base, this firm base, like the temple building on the foundation there. We're made for a fortress. I mean, it's good. Dumped how much cement into the ground there. <laughs> Built <laughs> the walls and got this kind of, kind of sturdy base deep into the ground, which is which is a foundation. That's like morality for us, Sila, establish this, this firmness of uh, of for the earth. We're dealing with the earth. Stability on the earth is morality, Sila, and and then. Then the, from there, the the aim isn't just to, to get stuck in the in the square, but to to rise up, you know, to seek the point. And at first, it's very, you know, it's refi- it seems refined, but it's like as you as you develop and trust in that stillness more and more, it seems like very kind of refined and, and delicate thing as you identify it and, and, and live with it more and more than it seems to get incredibly strong as it just embraces the whole whole world you know, it, 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 so at first it seems like a delicate almost easily lost easily forgotten point when you through the practice and it, it, you feel stabilized in that and then it seems to be vast and infinite so in a retreat like this they have opportunity to uh, you know you've got very good supporting conditions for this but, it, but uh, don't think that the that uh, that depends on on these ideal conditions. This realization is not dependent on on the uh, ideal situation. On the on the you know like having a beautiful temple, having a quiet community in a way. 
you can see it's like in the Buddha Rupa as a, the, the base, you know, it goes up to the point. Or remember, see, having uh, when we lived in, we used to spend time in the Buddhist community in Oxford, and you'd go. I remember going into the city of Oxford down by the river, Christchurch College, and looking up at the skyline of Oxford, and all these church steeples. You know, it's kind of like a celestial city, like something out of a medieval painting, you know, I mean, the, the church spires, so graceful, so beautiful, on the, on the horizon, you see them the sky, next to the sky, you think of the, that mind, kind of a European culture, when they built buildings, from that spiritual perspective. Then you go up go up to Hampstead Heath sometime, look down on London, it's all, the churches are all uh, hidden by the high-rise buildings. <laughs> the high-rise buildings are all kind of big square blocky blocks, of, you know, one room on top of another. <coughs> and so you, you get this, this kind of earthbound uh, heaviness of material that, that is, you know, is the symbol of materialism. It's, it's, you know, it's quite impressive in, in its hugeness and its cleverness. It, it doesn't, it, it's stuck onto the earth. It's earthbound. It's heavy. So like church steeples and like that helped to remember, you know. I developed practice around here, living here in, in England, of using church steeples as a reminder. There's a lot of churches throughout the countryside, churches everywhere. Church steeples. Because you don't have so many stupids in England. <laughs> but it's like using what you do have for reflection because if you forget you know the world you get pulled back into the ignorant view of the world and ourselves all the time because that's what everybody believes is reality we live in the real world people will say as if I you know I'm a Buddhist monk I live here I'm a, I'm a, the world I live in isn't real the real, the real world is out there But that's the the the, the real world uh, that everybody uh, who doesn't reflect and look deeply—that's what they believe is reality. And when you look more deeply, you don't you see it's not not, not reality. It's delusion based on based on delusion, based on not understanding dhamma, not reflecting, not observing the way things really are. And then who do you have in terms of, you know, for your life? You know, you've got to, as long as you're alive, you've got to, you've got this to deal with. You know, we, we will come and go out of your experience. You know, so things change and you move from one place to another and people die or people go away or 
that. But but you've got this, this still point always with you, you know, if you, if you trust in it. And so, just looking at experiences like wanting, uh, well, being celibate also, like being celibate community. Uh, you find you those periods of wanting, you're feeling enormous desire for intimacy because it can seem so kind of, you know, just uh, the, the lack of, of uh, physical intimacy that celibacy requires is, uh, is quite all right sometimes, other times it seems, uh, seems uh, unbearable. But, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you trust in, the, in, the, in your awareness of that desire, that longing for somebody else, or in, for a special friend, or a lover, or a partner, or somebody else, that longing, you know, you begin to, to see that, uh, that, uh, in terms of, what it really is is experienced now. I really think that that longing has something uh, that that it really is almost insatiable once you kind of get it, get, give into it. It's uh, always, you know, whatever. If you, you keep following that longing for for somebody else, then it will. Even when you, you find them the other it, it's still there. It's just gratified momentarily. It, it, it's, uh, that's its nature, just to keep, keep longing for things. For something you don't have. So in terms of this uh, awareness, that longing can be recognized, not criticized, or think, but it's noted as terms of a, as a condition that comes and goes. You see that the grasping of longing always is, is like, it gives us a lot of suffering. We're in a state of longing for somebody, longing for somebody. And then loneliness, being, <coughs> feeling lonely, another human problem. Fear of being left alone, being lonely, especially as you get older, being, being an old man. And you go to some of these old people's homes, these old people, nobody wants them. You, you put them in some place, it's good. Because they're, they're all they're sitting there, you know. I remember we went up to York last year. <coughs> Stopped in York on the way to Harlem and we went into York Minster. It's a beautiful uh, cathedral and we went in there and then we, uh, <coughs> and there was a, and it was a really cold day and we're taking Tanjo Kun Panyananta. There are all these old people uh, and there's these cultures of People, you know, from old people's homes, the community coaches and bands that brought old people to see the minster on that day. So, uh, 
So I was walking around the minister and a couple of old ladies sitting on a, you know, on a seat together and looked at me. And so I went over and talked to them, these two old ladies. And they, they were so delighted that I'd go and talk to them. <laughs> oh, it's made our day. I would seem to be give them more joy than the minister. <laughs> I have said anything very much. <laughs> I just paid attention to them, you know, acknowledge their their humanity. <laughs> so very uh, kind of obviously, you know, they're used to being ignored in the old old women of time. They not you know, expect to be noticed. So you get in this loneliness, uh, and that in itself, if you if you if you develop awareness around that, uh, you know you'll find that an inner peacefulness, a oneness, uh, uh, rather than a loneliness. So you kind of like you're moving into this point. Just a, that's the point of awareness. Just the listening. Attention to life in the present. You can hear the ringing silence, just the mind poised in a state of open attention. And from there, you can, if you develop that, trust in that, then all the kind of things that cause us so much pain and misery and delusion, you get some, you can begin to see them in terms of. Um, conditions and things you can let go of rather than a personal problem. You know, you're not just stiff up and live and don't don't bother with that. Just get on with life. And you know the the, the kind of uh, attitude that you know it's kind of noble in a way. Don't bother with all that stuff. You know. Of course you get lonely, but you just got to keep going, and you know. <laughs> don't wallow in it. You know, don't feel sorry for yourself, and, and then, you know, it all kind of grand in a way to be, you know, a strong character that isn't going to get stuck in this stuff. But eventually, you know, usually we have to face it sometime. I mean, people are dying oftentimes; it all comes out. You know, just before they die, all this. Resentment and fear and loneliness fill out in that time. So, uh, but in like with with meditation, we're we're actually you know learning how to deal with this, how to use this uh, as practice, as a, as a path. It's a path. That's just a reflection of axis mundi, self, self consciousness. Wanting to be liked and loved, fear being rejected, and all that kind of thing. Just that's the, those are, that's taken from the worldly view of the mind that 
that sees yourself in the in the world in terms of the person, the personality. And then, the, like I find now, just from my own, I contemplated this for years. You know that sense of of a personality isn't real to me anymore. My personality. Not, not important, not real. I don't believe in it. But it, it's been through kind of reflecting on it and recognizing it, knowing it. Not through just taking a stand that my personality isn't real and then just uh, deny, <coughs> denying it or ignoring it, but examining it. So even now, like you know, emotions come up, and and uh, emotional things will come up, you know, like getting feeling offended or annoyed with somebody or whatever. So I still can have those emotions, but I don't believe in them anymore. I don't trust, and I don't, I. Don't follow them. I won't follow that. I won't believe it. I won't, be, I won't let myself be caught in it. And it's not through denying it and rejecting it, through understanding it. And sometimes you you lose it, you get caught in your emotions, but more and more you're 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 less liable to do that. You, know, you don't feel you know despair when you when you forget and get carried away with your emotions. <laughs> but you can always start to do it. You know, it's, it's not a matter of getting rid of it, but of just trusting more and more in your ability to to uh, be mindful of it. About the relationship of Samatha and Vipassana, and uh, these are the Pali terms for meditation, divided into two categories. Samatha is like tranquility, and Vipassana is insight. And in country like Thailand, which is Buddhist uh, country and culturally aligned with Buddhism, and uh, Samatha is probably easier for people like that who who have some kind of cultural identity, some kind of uh, you know it's integrated into their into the language into the culture. And so Buddhism is, you know, uh, something that is you see from the time you're you're born. You know, Buddhist monks, Buddhist temples, chedis. This is just uh, a natural part of one's uh, visual experience. And then the culture is it has very strong roots in Buddhism. So there's a level of faith, which is a positive. Sada or faith is is a positive statement or or emotion or condition of the mind. 
And then what attracts uh, Western people to Buddhism is, most of them, is uh, Vipassana inside. Because our minds are the critical mind. We don't have a lot of faith. We have a lot of doubt. And uh, we, we are we're very critical and negative in our culture. Like here in, uh, in Britain, you, you, you can see that in Western Europe, uh, how, how critical people tend to be. Uh, and uh, always pointing out what's wrong with yourself, with someone else, with the society, with the world. And uh, so, so we gravitate towards Vipassana because we, uh, it's a, it, it, uh, we can easily relate to the suffering uh, of being negative, always, <coughs> always complaining or feeling there's something wrong blaming somebody uh, always seeing yourself in terms of what's wrong with you or what what's not so so good about yourself complaining about the weather complaining about poor politics and modern politics is horrendous you know it's just horrific in the United States and just just the whole attitude of Americans is uh, or as the president is, you know, just trying to find every little thing they can to, that's wrong with him, and then make a big issue, make a big deal about it. Now this is this is our our fascinating our obsession with with what's wrong, uh, and uh, the critical mind, modern education. You know, uh, encourages this, it's, you know, analysis, analytical training where you're comparing things. One is better than another thing. So uh, just recognize that you know that one re- one of the reasons why we suffer so much uh, in Western civilization in modern countries that are affluent is uh, that we create an so much negativity in the mind worry worry is negative worrying about the future resentment about unfairness or injustices or bad treatment you've received or or uh, anxiety uh, restlessness uh, the um, anger and all these states are very you know you get guilt they're oftentimes guilt-ridden, feel very guilty about uh, our faults or what we've done in the past, unskillful actions that we've done in the past. We tend to get obsessed with guilt about that. So this uh, this negativity uh, is addressed very much in in the noble truths, the dukkha. And samatha then is uh, oftentimes more difficult for Western people because because of the uh, lack of. Well, I mean, we we tend to see it in terms of just positive thinking, a 
like to know. Oftentimes, the way Western people approach meta is uh, is just like think pink, you know, <laughs> be nice, and and wish everybody to be happy, and 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 then it brings up a kind of cynical side of ourselves because it, you know, may you be happy, may all beings be happy, and then inside there's this negative thing that says, oh, you know, this is insipid. <laughs> Silly, so that that this um, we have a conflict sometimes in our minds about wanting to be good and uh, admiring what's good, needing to be inspired, but also being very full of doubts and and, and very cynical, also conflicting forces. If you look at samatha as a development of happiness, sometimes we see samatha in terms of like Visuddhi Magga or something, some book like that, which makes it all very technical, you know, you vitaka vitara piti sukha ekakata upeka and that kind of thing, and it, put, it puts it in terms of, for us, for Western people whose minds function like that, it, it, it doesn't simplify. It tends to make us see that samatha is very complicated. You go into the first, you do this preliminary training, concentrating the mind, then you get first jhana, second jhana, and it all looks so kind of... And, and <laughs> if, you're, if you're not cynical, you know, if you don't let cynicism in, you just think of, of uh, you know, of inspired thought. Like of love, of, of beauty, and, and uh, goodness, and and just dwell on these. In, these are inspiring to the to the mind. And so, samatha say is is uh, developing a happy mind. It's happiness. Rather that where where we where I mean, from my own experience, samatha was like. Another thing I couldn't do, I couldn't get the jhanas. So, you know, one one became one saw samatha as a as a as a, as a sign of failure, another sense of failure for me. Which is, I've lost the whole point. I didn't start with the right attitude. You know, zina is something I've got to get in order to get into vipassana, and that I've got to to do this and then, then I was doing this what I was told to do but, but I hadn't really uh, understood it or understood the power of happiness uh, I merely because I tended to be cynical uh, I had a strong cynical negative streak that would kind of sneer at happiness so then uh, uh, and I, I gravitated much more to Vipassana, to Dukkha, and, and that I found very, very helpful, and you know, very insightful. But also, as you, as as you, as you did, uh, uh, as you investigated the noble truth, then you began to see the causes of suffering, attachment, uh, desire, and attachment. So then they. Uh, then I began to experience some happiness or peacefulness or tranquility, positive states of mind that weren't just 
imposed on my mind, but it came quite naturally. So it wasn't just trying to, you know, be positive as a as a practice, but it, it was through through understanding dukkha and the causes that I began to appreciate <coughs> and understand how to create happiness in my life, how to uh, experience joy and these kind of uh, positive emotions. I think one of the most depressing assumptions that one has is, uh, is that is that uh, that one is a, a personality that kind of permanent I mean for me that was that was uh, I didn't particularly like myself as a person because I was always I was always focused on uh, the thing I didn't like about myself so there's always this critic going on, you know, the, this criticism of, of myself. And so to be a person was always a, a painful thing. I never liked listening to my own tapes, uh, reading my books, looking at my pictures. I just, I want, because every time I look at a photograph, that one I like, because that's the ideal. <laughs> that's what I like to look like. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but they generally they, the photos and, and these videos they make of me I can't I can't stand them <laughs> because they 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 bring up this criticism where I'm quite I'm, I'm much more kind of generous to other people not so critical I, I'm much more generous in my uh attitudes towards others and to myself. Why is that? And obviously it's self obsession. You know, and then you and then you get in a position where everybody wants to make a video or <laughs> doing something and taping <laughs> how many offers have I had people wanting to write my biography and things like that uh, because I mean they see me in a more generous way than, than I do but then in terms of, of a, uh, a in terms of practice then this uh, this self this personality is uh, you know has been investigated so having, I mean, that particular obsessive and obsessive aversion and criticism actually uh, produced enough dukkha for me to really put forth an enormous effort to understand the causes of it. And uh, so investigating experience, just the, this, uh, this uh, self-aversion, self-disparagement, has, has, uh, has something to observe rather than to try to just get rid of by being positive. And then, when the self drops away, when that, when the self view, personality view, drops, uh, no longer problem, then you, you, you kind of recognize the, the beauty of your life, you know, the, 
the, the uh, radiant qualities and the beauty of our humanity as experience. Because this, this inner critic, this uh, tyrannical, uh, nagging uh, thing in, in, inside me is, is no longer had much uh, influence. It has, its impact has been uh, destroyed. Don't believe it. Don't give it any any interest. Not interested in that anymore. And that's not through suppression, but through understanding. So then, uh, <coughs> some of the practices are, become, are you know quite enjoyable because now there's a lot of faith in the Dhamma, having seen how valuable it is and how it works. Then. Uh, and then I find a lot of uh, joy in uh, in like the devotional practices. Just being a Buddhist monk and having a temple and chanting and having Buddha rupas and using Pali words and and uh, looking at other Buddhist uh, traditions and and anything with Buddhism in it, you know, it has a <laughs> it has a kind of uplifting feeling for me. You know, you know I really love Buddhism, Buddha, you know, Buddha things, Buddhist. Uh, <laughs> because the the the, uh, the feeling is is not is not on a personal level anymore. Whether I'm a Buddhist or. And, but it's more just an appreciation of the of the beauty and the goodness of this particular religion. So, so in in Lumpur Cha was always, uh, you know, encouraging the both development of samatha and vipassana because he he also people would ask him, you know about samatha, about vipassana and, and he never made a problem about about one or the other and he's always saying how they complement each other you know so like the, the faith is is uh, one thing when, when you are basically negative and critical and doubting a doubting person unsure, uncertain uh about yourself, about everything in your life, uh, then then that uh, that very uh, tendency of the mind is uh, can be used through through uh, vipassana. That's what that's what uh, what uh, why I was so interested in Buddhism in the beginning because it addressed my problem very directly, doubting. <laughs> critical, uncertain, uh, indecisive personality that I had uh, could be, instead of seeing it as something that was uh, like a f personal fault that I had to get rid of or suppress, I actually use that, that very, uh, my, my weakness, my big flaw was actually the very uh, thing that, that that helped me to have the insight. So that's kind of wonderful way where you can take what may be your most, what is most painful for you and most 
that you think is, is your biggest obstacle or the th- thing you fear will prevent you from ever developing a spiritual path and all that you know if you're looking at it from your critical mind in terms of vipassana you're looking at it in terms of the Four Noble Truths which gives you a very uh, wise perspective on your own uh, suffering the causes of it and, uh, and realizing the way to let it go and, and not create suffering anymore through ignorance as this cynical thing faded in, I remember practicing metta and uh, this worked for me if, if, you're, if you have a cynical uh, kind of sarcastic streak in yourself uh, if you and so metta you find metta a pretty difficult thing to do in your life like uh, I remember uh, when Ajahn Anando was teaching metta he used to uh, he used to be very kind of he's much more kind of positive person than I am and so he teaches, you know, I love myself. He said, I love me. And and I found when I said that to myself, I just, I just cringed. When I said, I love me, I love Sumato, I just cringed. Something in me, just negative force, would just feel so silly and sickened by that. So then I... So I tended to see see that as a you know just in a very you know, cynical way. Uh, but then I contemplated it further, and then I, uh, you know, because I couldn't say that and and really feel that. I just, what it brought up when I said it to myself was this cynical reaction. Then I then I started. <coughs> you know, accepting the cynical reaction, just having metta for the reaction itself. <coughs> so I'd use it, yeah, I love Sumato as a kind of uh, catalyst, i say that, that this cynical reaction, and I have, then I have this, uh, I accept this, I, I totally accept and uh, have metta for the cynical reaction, and I feel this cynicism and this, this aversion to this statement and then that that seemed to uh, release that tendency more and more so as a, as this uh, as my negativity and cynicism as I have meta more meta more acceptance and of of my negativity my cynicism my sarcasm that was coming up in the present then I found then it actually released me from that reaction so I could actually say I love you Sumato and mean it and not get any cynical reaction that was just an experiment that I had with, with the problem with my, my character of being a, a cynical person so, so if you uh, other times you you know you can get uh, uh, like you you have a lot of resentment maybe to your parents something like that so you when they you know, I remember one woman 
uh, every time they came to I may my mother be happy may she be free from suffering she she hated her mother so much that she just couldn't uh, she just make her angry you know she just I can't say that I can I can do that for everyone else but my mother what's wrong with then she started feeling guilty and uh, and feeling there's something wrong with her because you know you're supposed to love your mother in this in all societies aren't you you're supposed to kind of your duty and a, and a kind of prerequisite to being a good human being is you love your mother and father and then uh, and then she couldn't do that all she could do is hate hate her mother resent her so then she said I can't do that like that it, it just makes me angry <laughs> but then if you apply that what I just said like it like you say, I love, may my mother be well and happy, and may she, may she be hate you can't stand your own mother. And then you say that, and then you, then the, the emotional reaction you have to that, you have metta for that, you accept that, not, not identify saying, you know, trying to, because if you think, you know, you should love your mother, then you, all you do is get this anger and resentment, then you feel it, it increases a sense of, of you as a personality and as a problem. So, but if you actually use a, the metta practice, uh, even as a catalyst, even for bringing up your negative uh, feelings, then you have metta for those negative feelings. Like metta is like, like non-aversion at first. On this level, it's like non-aversion. It's not even positive in the sense of I love my feelings type of thing. It's not, not like that. It's, it's total acceptance of what you're feeling without criticizing it. So you feel anger and resentment to your mother. And you, and you reckon you feel that anger and resentment and you let it be that way and you accept it for what it is means you're you're not creating aversion towards it they thought that the emotion itself might be aversion but you're not you're not making any problem about it you're just merely patiently bearing with this accepting it for what it is let's see what happens how, how a lot of the struggles we have in life are Are you know just uh, feeling uh, uh, you know su- such despair with ourselves because we can't be what we think we should be, or we can't get rid of our neurotic habits, or we can't be the loving, uh, uh, selfless individual that we would like to be. So then we then we uh, we can be very you know feel very discouraged and uh, hopeless as a person. If you see, like metta, I'm taking metta to a much deeper level than just, may I be happy, may you be happy, that kind of thing. It's, 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 it's really an attitude of, of being, of not dwelling in aversion on something, on something you don't like and hate. Whether it's external or or in internal thing. 
So you're not asked to like like something that you don't like. That's an impossible thing, isn't it? Like if you don't like something and I say you should like it, then you're just going to feel guilty. You know, you, I don't like Buddhism. You should like Buddhism. Buddha did a lot for us. <laughs> then, what's wrong with me? And then you, uh, then you feel, you know, I can't be a Buddhist or Ajahn Samedo is just, you know, bullying me. Or you can blame me or you, you blame yourself for not being able to, to like something you should like. But in Vipassana meditation, it's not asking you to, to do anything, but to be aware of it. If you dislike Buddhism, then you can be aware of that as an experience rather than a, than a position you take or an identity. And then that's a, a kind of what I call metta practice. Metta then is, is, is loving kindness or, or goodwill or uh, putting it on this level, it's non-aversion and patient, being patient with it because oftentimes those kind of emotions make us very impatient. We, they're so uncomfortable and unpleasant we want to just get away from it. So you find like negative emotions and then you get so they're so unpleasant and uh, they're so, so uh, you know un- unwanted that you we just have uh, very often reactive patterns to our negativity just distract ourselves and talk about the weather or look for something to do. But in, in turn, uh, but it's so patience, country borrowing, patience is, uh, is also a metta, being patient, meaning you're willing to bear with pain or emotional uh, stress. You're willing to bear it, you're willing to let it be this way. You're not, uh, you're, and your, your emotional reactions. But you're willing to accept what you're emotionally feeling. If, if you're emotionally feeling, how can I get rid of this? You're willing to accept that feeling of wanting to get rid of it. So it's, it's, uh, it, it goes through the the, the whole the accepting, being patient, uh, and bearing with, and not creating aversion towards. Uh, what you say, particularly what you don't like, you don't want. So metta is a very useful practice in the Western world, where we tend to be, we tend to lack sada in the in Buddhism. We tend to be very critical and always want to change things. You know, like, like the first reaction is, just as I was saying, is blast him, kill him. You know, Americans. Take your bombs and just blast the hell out of Baghdad. If you can get get Saddam Hussein in the process, <laughs> and it's like you know what I don't like, I just want to blow up, get rid of the IRA. You know, they're good at that. So blow it up, or all these terrorist organizations. You know, just kill the Tutsis and the Hutus in Rwanda. Kill all the Tutsis. 
then then that will solve the problem. And just what did it do? It just you know created more bad karma, horrible, horrendous karma that that country is going to suffer from for generations. Rent to kill, isn't it? Or company. Rent to kill. Rent to kill. It's a hor- horrible title for a business. <laughs> it's not like you need to hire somebody to kill somebody. It's really to kill pests and things. But pet <laughs> insects and uh, dry rot. But uh, in a remember, you know, before I was a monk, I used to see ants crawling across the night and said, where's the insecticide? And I'd spray him. Watch him curl up and die. And I remember as a child in uh, Seattle, they have all these uh, slugs in the garden. You know, these kind of jelly-like slugs. And, and if you put salt on them, they melt. And my sister and I used to go out and pour salt on these wretched creatures and watch them kind of melt. And uh, how this can get rid of the pests is a very, you know, it seems practical. You know, they eat the tomato plants and then they destroy the cabbages. And there's all kinds of re- re- rationalizations to justify killing your enemies or getting rid of the pests. And if you really look at the mental state of wanting to get rid of something you don't like, that's where with meditation, like in Thailand where there's so many mosquitoes you know you know you want to kill them my first reaction was you know kill the mosquitoes they they give malaria they're they're annoying the world would be better off Uh, if I were God I would never have created mosquitoes (laughs) that's what I used to say if I were God, I would never, I would have done a better job. I would not have done a better job. Mosquitoes are nothing lovable. Even after 30 years, you still don't, can't find them, you know, that you really feel positive feeling for them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't feel negative, I don't create negative feelings for it. And, uh, and then watching that state of wanting to destroy them is, you know, when I see that in myself, that's a painful mental state. That's dukkha, wanting to get rid of what I don't like. Is is dukkha? You know, but I know that through watching, through experiencing that dukkha, not through just having an idea about dukkha. You know, wanting to kill the mosquitoes, I actually use that as a way of observing this desire, this impatient this impatient being irritated and, and, and being impatient with these annoying this annoying buzz the, the way they, they bite you and hit you and things like that just uh, you get so impatient because you want to get really want to get, want to get your samadhi <laughs> trying to get into the first job and then Where's my mosquito bat? I want a a mosquito screen cookie here. So there's all kinds of ways to keep them away, but and which is fair enough. But also practice with a pest, like in your own mind. 
the pests of your own mind. There's not many mentioned mosquitoes or annoying pests external, but that inner nagging thing, that 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 cynical uh, uh, nag and, and uh, critic and tyrant within you, rather than just trying to get rid of it, like spray insecticide on it, you. You study it, you you feel it, you you know it. So that's like the pasanai, the seemingly anicca dukkanata of conditionality. And then you actually practice medicine to really understand something. You have to accept it for what it is. If you're just caught in reacting, you know, something awful, something terrible, and you just get rid of it, you can't really understand it. You just it's a reaction. It's a habitual reaction you'll have. To understand that, you've got to really accept it for what it is. You, you know, it's pain or disease or or grief or uh, resentment, jealousy, these emotions. Before you can before you can be free of them, you have to you have to accept them for what they are and, and feel them and let them be <coughs> where they are. So that's patience, isn't it? Being patient. And determine, use aditana as a term, determination not to be critical of it. I found that helpful for me because I used to use I make a determination not to be critical of anything that I'm feeling. Doesn't mean I'm always successful at it, but it, it means that I I have that in my mind, and I made that determination. So then I maybe I lose it, and I feel something, and I feel critical. But I, because of that determination, that aditama, then I suddenly it helps me to remember to drop it, not to be critical. So then the, that the self that 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 cloying sense of self and, and uh, that it, it, its power starts fading out, diminishing. It's a fading process. You're not just going to get rid of it overnight through this kind of practice. It just suddenly drops and never have it again. It, w- it would be nice. I like. <coughs> used to wish it were like that, but it's it's a it's <laughs> like getting enlightened. I used to hope. Enlightenment, where you suddenly, you know, you do, you, you go and practice meditation for three months intensely, and you get enlightened, and then all your suffering drops forever. You just <laughs> yeah, just wise and loving all the time, and and uh, and nothing ever disturbs your 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 sama samadhi. You know, people can yell at you or. <laughs> and, uh, it'd be nice if, if you could do it, but I, I can't do that. So it's, uh, it's an ongoing, ongoing uh, uh, challenge to, you know, mind. That's what mindfulness is, isn't it? It's not like a, a magical state that you attain uh, through hard work. It's a natural state that you learn to maintain. And rest in, right? and because we're conditioned to to uh, want, you know, to have magic and have, you know, 
thing and get rid of things forever and be happy forever and all that then, then we uh, you know we've got this incredible restless desire uh, that it's always you know not content not uh, not accepting the present you know we're looking for something and to get something or get rid of something but to contemplate it in, you know, in restlessness, kind of hoping to attain or get something, or uh, insight also is an attachment to ins- memories of insight is a big problem we all have. So you have insight, and then, then you you remember it the next day, and you want to have it again. <laughs> <laughs> you can start practicing meditation just to get another kind of blissful insight and it doesn't work. That's because you're attached to the memory of having insight or having some profound spiritual experience and you remember it that you want to have it again. And you see that, if you just observe that, that desire for becoming patient, with patience and, and and Adita not to be critical of it, but to be patient, accepting of it, the way it is. The way one is, the way the, the, the feeling, uh, the, the mood, the way it is. It's, uh, to, to remind yourself of that, just to, being willing to let it be this way, even if you're, you know, really, if you're feeling horrible, to let it be that way, not to 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 try to get rid of it, blame it on somebody, blame it on yourself, but just even as you're more willing to to accept that acceptance <coughs> and willing to be to let something be that way is transcending, and it's actually your you you find a you find a, a peacefulness with with misery, not a not a kind of stupid resignation to misery. That's not it, but a peacefulness because that metta and acceptance patience is a very peaceful way to be, and it's and it's not making a problem about the miserable state you're in. So you you begin to. To recognize, you can do that. It's within your, you know, it's, a, it's a, one of the great gifts of our human birth. That we can actually do this. This is not asking you to do something impossible, or that is advanced. Like you, you're too, you you are too, uh, you're too young. You're too inexperienced. You haven't meditated long enough to be able to do this. It's not like that. It's 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 not a matter of attainment, but um, it's more an attitude of willingness and patience and and slowing down and and uh, and, and learning to to accept and what what you you wouldn't accept before, or learning to endure what you you think you can't endure. And even if you, you know, even if you can endure endure something a little longer than you ordinarily would, that's an improvement. 
I'm not asking for perfect perfect success in any way, but one time I used to, you know, the self-critic would say, well, you still get angry. You know, the, the inner tyrant would say, well, you still get angry after all these years. And then the wisdom said, yeah, but you you you're not. You don't get angry, angry so quick. You don't lose it so quickly like you used to. <laughs> <laughs> so then you're appreciating. your you know that, that it, you haven't been. You know you have a little more uh, patience, even though you, you might in the end uh, lose it. it. It's not quite so just immediate. Where before you know somebody says this, and you go, wow. somebody says that, and you. You just reactive, you know. But then, as you, as you reflect more, you, then you're more aware. You might somebody says something insulting to you, and you, you feel that. You feel it. Oh, I. But you're aware of it, you know. <laughs> and then maybe, uh, and maybe uh, you can't hold it for all that long. But and then maybe you, two seconds later, you're going. What are you? But at least two seconds have passed. <laughs> See that is, is something to to respect yourself for, rather than to to feel uh, you know that you're you can't you know get caught in this. Oh, there I go again, lost it, feel angry, and I'm horrible, hopeless case. Because that's what your tyrannical inner tyrant will say. Inner tyrants will always tell you're hopeless. You know, you've been, how long you're meditating and you still lose it like that. You're always disgusting. That's what the tyrant says. But the thinking about this, taking joy in, in even the, the slight improvements and in that of your life, in, in the holy life, you know, it's quite humbling. It's not not like inflating yourself. It's quite humbling because it isn't like you know really attain enlightenment and a stream entry and all this you know really big time stuff. But you're you know it really can feed in a sense of yourself as a you know really good meditator, really good monk, really super nod and all that it's humbling isn't it because you, we do tend to see ourselves in terms of in competitive life we want to be the best you know, the winner the best the champion instead you know maybe things that used to make me angry you know don't make me so angry anymore I don't mind in fact a lot of things that used to upset me don't bother me at all anymore I think that's wonderful I used to get upset by a lot of things that now don't don't bother me in the least. And then you keep learning as, as your vipaka karma ripens. You know, you, you get pushed, you get tested out in all kinds of ways. Keep going. <laughs>